George and Michelle Walker are the proprietors of Biting Dog Press. Yes, and George Walker Editions, which we use generally for other projects, such as broadsides. We've also gone under the name Wanda Street Press and NK Press. And I've, of course, I've worked for the Cheshire Cat Press, which was with Phil Poole and Joe Burbank, where we only publish Carolinia, just works by Carol. He had uh, sketches. He had letters from Lewis Carroll to uh, his pen pals. He had a library filled with one book in all its variations. He could travel the world. Because he was a lawyer in a big corporation, traveled over the world many, many times, and his only aim was to go to bookstores in these big international cities and grab Carolinia. What was his name again? Joseph Brabant. His collection is now at the Fisher Rare Book Library. Brabant? Brabant. Bill got us together and we decided we were going to form the Cheshire Cat Press and we were going to print Carolinia. Uh, and we were, our first project was going to be Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, where I was going to be the illustrator and because we were printing at letterpress, I would have to master wood engraving because there were going to be a lot of wood engravings, uh, wood engraving on every page. And so that meant I'd have to make a hundred wood engravings or more. That also meant that I would have to make a hundred blocks to carve on, and they would all have to be type high, which is 0.918 thousandths of an inch high, and they'd have to meet all these technical specifications too. So every month, uh, Joe and Bill uh, and I would meet for lunch at various uh, spots around the city and uh, discuss Alice in Wonderland and uh, some of the eccentricities that Carol had, like uh, spelling shant with two apostrophes because he insisted that there were two letters missing and so therefore there had to be two apostrophes and, and fun things like that and about Carol's life and about his interest in mathematics mm. and uh, the puzzles that may or may not be embedded in uh, Carol's most famous text. So that helped inform how you produced these engravings then, I'm assuming. Yes, Carol was obsessed with the engravings and often would count the lines in them. And if he noticed that the Queen had uh, 72 shading lines in uh, an earlier engraving <laughs> that Tenu did, he would comment that this particular shading has less lines. And Tenniel <laughs> thought this was madness. Mm -hmm. Why would you count the lines in sh shading changes? These characters are animated, are mm. they not? Mm. Uh, are they moving through different places? Why would you count the lines? Anal. Uh -huh. In fact, he rejected the first uh, publication. Uh, Macmillan uh, printed it, and because Carol was paying for it, he said the engravings weren't printed very well. That edition became known as the American edition. Shipped off to the, Shipped the, off to the uh -huh. U.S. So you find a copy of that edition, you're an instant millionaire. Sounds like a big project that may have taken quite a bit of time. Ten years for the first book, 94 wood engravings, all hand printed, 177 copies. And where are those copies now? Are they uh, in lots of institutions, I would imagine? Four corners of the earth. Yeah, I put a different binding on every copy so they don't even look the same. Okay. Some of them are sculptural, uh, and some of them I gave copies to my friends who were bookbinders, like Don Taylor, who would produce unique bindings for them. Don produced one where there's a music box. You open it up. Some copies are put on handmade paper and others are not. And that was Bill's choice because we had 
our friends make handmade paper, and we didn't have enough handmade paper to do the whole 177 on handmade paper, so we did 10 copies on handmade paper. And so I had those bound differently than the regular edition. The Victoria Albert Museum in London has a copy, the Fisherware Book Library. Uh, the Osborne has all the blocks. Osborne Library in, in Toronto. Toronto. Is that the children's? Uh, yes. That's where Victoria, Queen Victoria's childhood collection of books well. I believe that's how the collection started. Okay, so we did uh, Alice, and I assume other things were sort of percolating in the wings. Mm -hmm. What next then? When I met Michelle, we were married in 1984, and we went to Mexico for our honeymoon. For our honeymoon. We saw all the museums, and we fell in love with the work of Frida Kahlo, and went to see all of Diego Rivera's work as well, which we found very political, and not as sensitive to the human condition as Kahlo's work was. Michelle was inspired to write poetry about the life of Frida Kahlo, so when we came back, I cut up a number of blocks from Michelle's poems, and we published I Marry the Earth, and I Marry the Earth is a reference to uh, death. Our lives are all about getting ready for this ultimate marriage. Returning to dust. Mm -hmm. That was the third or fourth project that we did together involving poetry. And we're really not as morbid as that sounds. <laughs> I think we are. <laughs> well, you're both wearing black. <laughs> Over breakfast here at Cora's in Ottawa. <laughs> so basically then you've just sort of followed your interests loves, uh, passions. You also teach. Yes, I'm an associate professor at the Ontario College of Art and Design now. I teach introduction to the book arts, uh, the book as arts, paper to book, uh, letterpress typography, book binding, and a number of other courses that they demand that I teach. I have a lot of fun doing it. I really love passing this knowledge on, inspiring uh, younger people who are in the digital age and waking them up to where a lot of the terminology actually comes from, everything from letting to ligatures. I think it's important to keep this knowledge alive and to uh, support uh, generating archives for the future of uh, finely printed works. And I'm also interested in pushing the boundaries of what we understand the book to be as a structural uh, object. So everything from uh, the scroll to uh, more contemporary approaches, pages being uh, closed on a clothesline, so more installation type pieces that would uh, involve yeah, book artists and uh, book art. So yeah. I, I, I love all that, and a lot of them uh, still involve hand setting type and, and learning how to use equipment that many people would think is obsolete, but in the hands of artists it becomes uh, new again. Of course, that's what all new technologies are, they're usually built on old technologies and an understanding of how those technologies work actually gives you greater insight into the possibilities of how they can be expanded on. Which is a humanist philosophy. Yes, definitely. Adding your own imagination and creativity to what's already there to do something new. That's how knowledge moves. That's how we get new innovations. One of the best ways to, to preserve what we have is to encourage a collecting culture. And that's part of what I'm trying to do with, with these interviews. And so with that in mind, I wonder if we could change gears then slightly and talk about, first of all, what you would recommend someone who's interested in, in the beauty and wonder of handmade, fine press, private press books. If you were in your early 20s without a huge amount of money, what would you do to start off a collection? Well, it's always important to read. There's a lot of information out there. If you're going to start a collection, it has to be something you love. So if there's an author that you love, if there is a, uh, a genre that you love, then that's where you start. 
and then you look for works that have value, that they're uh, special editions, that they're made with materials that are meant to last. I would not suggest that you collect paperbacks. I would not suggest that you collect books that are printed on pulp paper, because they're not going to last. But I would look for unusual editions. If you're aware of all the different techniques that are used to create a book, then you're better prepared to uh, recognize a well-printed book mm. when you see it. So there is a bit of education involved in understanding the difference between a perfect bound book and a smice. Which is book. ironically named, because it's not perfect binding at all. Yes, it's no. just glued on <laughs> yeah. the spine. Yeah. But things like the Porcupine Quill, they're a Canadian press who, who produce finely made books that are smice-sewn. They're uh, paperbacks but they're of the highest quality, and the paper is acid-free, so it's neutral pH, pH 7, and that's the type of thing that you, you want to uh, look for, is something that's finely made, because that will have lasting value, because it won't disintegrate, and that's what collecting is. You don't collect for temporary things. If you're going to do that, then perhaps you should just be collecting e-books, because e-books uh, epitomize uh, the temp temporariness of, of Ephemeral, media. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's here today, gone tomorrow. It would be the uh, space-based media that um, Harold Innes talked about, and that uh, Marshall McLuhan also elaborated on. It's this instant pleasure. Here, You can have it now, and you get it all right now, but it, it's not going to last. I think what people should do who want to start collecting is to go to book arts fairs and see the actual books and pick them up if yeah. you can, ask first, and talk to the people who make them. And then you'll find out what the heart of the whole thing is, which yeah. is tactile and related we, to the books we had when we were kids, but more precious or even yeah. more you know, emotional. And buying student works, I think that's really important. It, it's hugely expensive to make the books that we make. We don't make spreadsheets of profit and loss or any of that because we would stop doing it if we found out exactly what a, a black hole it is, yes. <laughs> and there are a lot of young people, such as uh, the students from my classes, mm -hmm. who are starting out. They bought a press and they bought put everything, all their resources into and printing books. So they go to Don Black, uh, line in casting Scarborough. in Scarborough. Okay. He was a newspaper guy and yeah. had a little cry, I think, when the presses were no longer needed for the Globe and Mail where he worked. And then suddenly thought, okay, I'm going to buy all this stuff that Wonderful. is obsolete. So Smart. he did that in the 70s. He's a yeah. brilliant guy. So that's the mecca <laughs> for the Canadian and maybe the American mm -hmm. Because uh, he's got so many out. of these he has printing presses, presses, line casting machine, and all the tools Type. that you need in order to start a small letter pressure. Wonderful. It even has little okay. baby tabletop presses, the Kelsey's and the Excelsior, that were the part of the hobby industry. Mm -hmm. In the 1950s, and many um, comic books and uh, and pulp magazines, in the back, you would see ads saying, become a printer, you know, and you'd order this little press that came with a, a, yep. uh, a case of type with a composing stick, and you could print business cards. Remember the Rockford Files? I do. When we were kids? He had a little press like that in the back of his car, and he would print up whatever uh, business card he needed to have for his persona that he was right. being that day. Right. We have one of them. We take Mobile. it to, Yeah, we take it to the Outdoor Art Exhibition in Toronto because we sell George's prints, the images themselves also. It's a hard thing to explain why it's an artwork, even though there are many. It's a multiple. Each one hits the page differently, though, doesn't it? Yeah, 
Yeah, it yeah. does. And once they see this little press, most people become really excited about buying the artworks because then they can see that they're originals. They yeah. understand that it's the hand of the maker. It is a machine, but it's, as you say, it's it's well, related then to human beings. I'm speaking with Michelle and George Walker, book artists, mm -hmm. poets, book lovers, wood engravers, bibliophiles, mm -hmm. collectors. What do you collect and why? I love to collect books that have wood engravings or woodcuts in them. Franz Masrell, Lynn Ward, Otto Nuckel, Giacomo Patry have wrote a book for Firefly Books on the history of the wordless novel, uh, starting with the words of Franz Masrell, who in 1918 produced a uh, wordless narrative. Like called, the one that you've produced. Exactly. Yeah. He's one of my biggest influences. I discovered his work in the 1980s at the Art Gallery of Ontario and realized that I wanted to do that. I wanted to produce these narratives that could be read in any language, whether they're polylingual. And I, I love the grammar of pictures to be able to tell a story and that so poignant and so engaging, and yet there are no words. There is a text. We the image as text. collecting them in, in the 80s. In the 80s, yeah. Franz Masrell. And where did he come from? Uh, Belgium. When did he produce most of his work? The first book was 1917. He died in the 1980s. The volumes that we have, sometimes they're German, but it doesn't matter. Like yes, the, he, the original introduction. During the war, he moved around Europe. That led me to Lynn Ward, who had studied in Germany in the 1920s. He, when he got married to his wife, May McTeer, who was a children's book author, he discovered the work of Franz Masrell and was inspired to do wordless narratives of his own and he took them, that idea back to the United States and started to create his own wordless narrative. So he sort of was, what about another generation forward? In the 1930s, right? yeah. 30s to... He, he died in the 1980s as well and I think his last uh, wordless narrative was probably the late 40s. The Passion of Journey was 1937. So George is a completist. That's so great. Got, Me too. So That's a bad thread of the disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In every form, he has all of those guys. So you've, t you've carried on that tradition then, you might say. The wordless narrative tradition. What might be wonderful is to get a sampling of each. Now, is there anyone else in the string that we've missed? Yes, there's uh, a number. An important person would be uh, Lawrence Hyde, who's a Canadian in the 1950s. I'm sorry, my wife needs to interrupt. <laughs> we actually She's came excited, to, though. That's good. We came to Ottawa four years ago and met Lawrence Hyde's son. Yes, I was oh. getting that to that really? point. Okay. Lawrence Hyde in the 1950s was a great friend of Rockwell Kent. He lived here in Ottawa. Okay. And was outraged with the American testing in the Bikini Atolls and decided to do a wordless narrative that was called Southern Cross. This book was published, all wood engravings, over a hundred, showing how the Bikinians lived in this paradise and the Americans came in and then blew this paradise off the face of the earth in the name of peace. And he thought this was very ironic. Bombing for peace. Yeah. Bombing for peace. Yeah. And we, we still do it today. The, the, the interesting thing was is that uh, I wanted to reproduce that book in a collection of wordless narratives that's been published called Graphic Witness. And so Michelle and I uh, needed to get permission from the family to uh, reproduce his, his book. And so we found Lawrence Hyde had a son, Anthony Hyde, who was, was a, a novelist. The Fox. That's right. Uh, yeah. Red yeah, yeah. Fox, Red Fox yeah. and uh, China Lake. 
I think this is the other one. We emailed him and he agreed to, to meet with us. So we drove up here all excited saying, oh, you know, we, we really admired your father's work. And, and of course, we had read his books too, so it was a, a double thrill. And we had a great t afternoon, had a cup of tea, and he showed us all this incredible stuff in his house because he had all these original prints and art. He grew up with it. We were fascinated with his, uh, his father's work. His father actually later went on to work for the National Film Board of Canada. And here's an interesting thing. He used the wood engraving narrative, of course, as a, a door opener because he understood sequential narrative. It's like storyboard related to film. Yeah. And that's all he had to show to say, hey, I can make documentary films. Look at this, here's a, a, a narrative in pictures. That was exciting for me to realize that, there, that these things could move Mediums. between me mediums yeah. and we do that with uh, most of our information we translate it to different mediums to uh, understand it from different directions you've read the book now see the movie here's the radio play based upon the book based upon the movie here's the expanded book with uh, fully illustrated with uh, historical pictures yeah. and here's the sequel and here's the sequel and, and we would have to collect all of them yes, yes. so we've kind of covered the idea of collecting we've covered some of your work and what you collect have we completed that part of the conversation? Is there anything else that you... Uh, that I collect? collect? I, I, I love old books. I would love to be able to collect Incunabula. It's so far away from where my economic situation yeah. lies that I can only dream of owning something that old. I would also like to collect anything from the Kelmscott Press. We, yeah. we have some things from uh, the Penman Press, which is Michael McCurdy. What other limited editions do, do we have from other private press? Well, and, and contemporary artists who are my friends, like Margaret Locke. The reason we were able to collect that work is because we know them, and yeah. we can either do an exchange yeah. or, or barter so that we can actually afford to have each other's work. We also like uh, the design work of Dwiggins, who in the 1930s did some beautiful editions. He worked a lot with Knopf. That's he, yeah. he did. The connection here is that he was also on the board for the Colophon, which is that limited edition I told you about the, that inspired the Ways Goose anthology. That subscription anthology, known as the Colophon, had Frederick Gowdy on the board of directors, D Dwiggins, and many other well-known designers and artists who contributed to, to that. And so uh, it's a who's who of uh, designers and artists and artisans of the, the 1930s. It's, it's not cheap. They're about $100 each. These Ways Goose anthologies from Grimsby, that might be a fun thing to look at as well. They're easy to collect, and if, I, I would suggest that, that would be a great place to start for someone who is uh, looking to get into collecting limited editions because these anthologies have samples from a lot of the private presses that are active now. Yeah. And you can get a copy simply by contacting the Grimsby Public Art Gallery in Grimsby, Ontario. Yeah. You can find them online. And, and they'll mail it to you. And I think they're under $100. This is an affordable way to own hand-printed works of art in a package that is archival. And to develop your taste. Too. And to develop your taste. Yeah. You'll yeah. be able to flip through that and say, you know, I really like this person's work. I want to find out more of what they published. George, you're in all of them. I'm in all of them. <laughs> From the beginning. From the beginning, under different yeah. press names. But uh, I appear, you have to look carefully. Sometimes it's Fighting Dog Press. Uh, sometimes it's Columbus Street Press and the early editions. And in the first edition, I'm just listed as one of the bookbinders. That's a great place to start. If we, if we like this idea of the anthology, the predecessor of the Grimsby Ways Goose anthology was the Colophon. But you uh, mentioned oh, yes, Canadian. Yes. Oh yeah. yes, uh, Carl Dare and the wrong font. He actually started to get 
printers that he inspired to contribute little pieces of, or samples of print on a topic to, well, it's more like a folio than an anthology. So it was in an envelope? Was and it, it was in an envelope. Okay. And it would have wrong font sticker on it. And all the participants would get a copy of that. Can you find those or not? If you're, you'd have to be a very good book scout to actually find them. I, okay. I've, got, I've got one, but I haven't seen very many of them. And, and unfortunately, because it's an envelope, it's a kind of thing that disappears quickly. If the envelope gets turned upside down, if it's open, the contents are gone. And so sometimes you yeah. find them, but they're incomplete. And for collectors, you know, that's that's a problem. The thing that went prior to that was the colophon you mentioned? The colophon? Oh, the, well, it is a book. It's a okay. 1 to 20. It, after uh, the war, they actually had to change the size. It got much smaller and more commercial. So if you're going to collect that, you should collect the, the editions from about 1930 to 1938 or 39. I think okay. they were case-bound. And some of them had slip cases, okay. uh, but they were extra that you had to buy. And there were various levels that you could participate in and they were very expensive twelve dollars for a subscription it's a lot of money in the Back 1930s then, yeah. remember yeah. this is during the depression and what do they so, go for now do you have any idea uh, now they range anywhere from nine hundred dollars and uh, if you find the uh, David Milne edition uh, there you've got a real find that has an original etching by David Milne the famous Canadian landscape artist to ten or fifteen dollars I've seen some of the editions that people aren't so keen on but if you get the ones after 1939 and after the war, they're a smaller edition. They're a smaller sized book. They don't go for as much money. I've seen them for uh, ten and fifteen dollars a copy. But the unique thing about the early edition was each one had the original print in it, usually signed by the artist. So that makes them very, very collectible for yeah. people who are interested in collecting uh, artists from the 1930s. Everyone participated that I can think of that was active in illustrating in that time period. I think Rockwell Kent also participated. Nigel, I forgot to mention that the Fisher has bought our whole history. They oh. have one of almost everything. So, And how many is that, Michelle? I think it's about 50 okay. over 27 years. Yeah, it depends on whether you count some of the ephemera. And I also did unique book work, so one books off. that are just one, whether they're uh, criticizing our concept of archive or poking fun at how we understand the life of the Vincent van Gogh. Mm. George did a lot of paper ear sculptures. Mm, yes. yes, and I did a lot of uh, book works that experimented with uh, sound and, uh, and text and our understanding of how we write sound. I'm, uh, I'm interested in how we create graphs and letter forms that uh, represent sounds and this relationship between speaking and, uh, and writing. I find that always fascinating because, of course, as we know, letters are pronounced differently throughout yeah. different cultures. And Even so though there is an international phonetic dictionary, isn't there? Yes, I, I like that. I like that I think there's an interpretation as to what the symbol sounds like. So if, if you have a sound like the screeching of a bird, how do we then make that into a symbol that uh, is representing the screeching of a bird? Yeah. I, I, I love that. I explored that with some tongue-in-cheek in, in works like Acrophony, where I experimented with using uh, planetary symbols to indicate uh, the degree of a scale, so Pythagoras' music of the spheres. We improvised music around that uh, diatonic scale and uh, created these charts to read from so that you could actually experiment with reading if you uh, taught yourself that Mars was a particular uh, semitone within the scale you'd be able to look at it and play that and that was a lot of fun I, this is sort of referencing people like uh, John Cage who's who's very active in, in that kind of experimental sound exploration and it comes with a CD <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
Well, great. That's not a complete picture of, of what you do and what inspires you, but it, it gives us a pretty good taste of, of who you are and why we should pay attention to what you do. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I've been speaking with George and Michelle Walker. Thanks very much. Thank you.